Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Whether you're here today, you're on the mountain, or whether you're in the valley, our prayer is that this service would mean much to you and help you take another step uh, in your walk with Jesus. I know some of you are walking through some very deep valleys right now, and as Pastor John has said, some of you are on top of the world, and so that's why we come together Uh, to encourage one another in the faith and help each other along. We need each other. I'm so glad you're here. I want to say welcome back for those of you who call Bible Center Church your home. I love just week after week gathering to worship with you. Uh, But also for those of you who are new, I'm Pastor Matt. I would love to meet you. I'll be out in the lobby after the service. Would love to uh, put a face with your name. Uh, Feel free to stop by on your way out. And as Pastor Steve has already said, which by the way, doesn't Steve do a good job with announcements? Man, a guy just does a great job. Yeah, got to get him up here uh, more often. But as he's already said so eloquently, we welcome you as well who've joined us online. If you take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be in a few moments. And while you're turning there, I just want to bring you up to speed on where we are in our series. Right now, we are concluding today our series called Authentic, The Marks of a Disciple. And we've been trying to answer the question, what is a maturing follower of Jesus? You see, that's our mission here at Bible Center, to glorify God by producing more maturing followers of Jesus. But it's helpful for us to know what that means. What is our target? Just like you bow hunters know, you can't Uh, You can't hit the target, most likely, unless you know what the target is. We've got to know what the target is. And so throughout this series, we've looked at the three marks of a disciple. And what we did back in the summer is our executive team went away for several days, and we spent several days looking through God's Word every time the word disciple is used. And then we would take Jesus' words as He defined disciple And we tried to come up with a good definition of what it means for us to produce more maturing followers of Jesus. And so we've boiled all of those verses down to these three descriptions. We know that we are disciples of Jesus. We're increasingly following Him. We'll throw them up there on the screen. If we, one, love God, if we, two, love others, and if we, number three, love our neighbors— As we're increasingly loving God, loving other Christians, and loving our neighbors, we can be sure that we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to talk primarily about that last mark of a disciple, loving our neighbors. It's important one more Sunday for me to give the the caveat, and that is none of us do this perfectly. Though it is the characteristic of our lives as people who love Jesus and people who want to follow Jesus, none of us have arrived. And so this is what we're becoming day by day as we're transformed into the image of Christ. So this morning, I'm going to retell a familiar story, if you've been in church at all, the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. And then I'm going to conclude today by giving you one thing that I'd like you to know and one thing I'd like you to do. One thing I'd like you to know, and one thing I'd like you to do. Now, throughout this series, you can tell it's been very near and dear to my heart. And I believe this is the most important series, the most important thing we can be talking about in 2020, really for several reasons. I think in this series, including this morning's message, somebody's salvation may be at stake. 
I don't know your heart and you don't know my heart, but we're going to read the words of Jesus. And Jesus is going to tell us, he's going to describe for us what an authentic disciple looks like and what an inauthentic disciple looks like. My prayer this morning is that if you see in that contrast that you're not a genuine follower of Christ, that you'll put your faith in Jesus today. That's our prayer. That's what we've prayed all week. So somebody's salvation might be at stake. But secondly, I believe someone's satisfaction is at stake. Somebody's joy, probably most of our joy, is at stake. You see, Jesus taught that the way to joy, the pathway to peace, the pathway to contentment is not just getting in life, but it's giving ourselves away to others. And so the Good Samaritan really is just a a small description, a snapshot of Jesus. And I believe that all of us can experience more joy, even in the darkest days, if we'll let this story, this characteristic of Jesus, sink deeply into our hearts. But then the last reason this message is important is because of strategy. You know, we every Sunday just want to make sure you know where we're going as a church, what our vision is, what our strategy is. And so at the end of the message, I'm going to share a little bit about how this message relates to our strategy in 2020 and beyond. So let's go ahead and dive into Luke chapter 10. In verse 25, I'll read one verse at a time and we'll make comments as we go. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion an expert in the law. Let's stop there just for a moment. What is an expert in the law? Some of your translations may say lawyer. Well, this isn't a lawyer, uh, someone who knows constitutional law or someone who knows Roman law, but this was an expert in Jewish law, someone who is trained to know all 613 laws of the Old Testament. Now, 613 might sound like a lot, but actually there were thousands more. In the time period between the Old Testament's conclusion and the coming of Jesus, that 400 or so years, during that 400 years, the Jewish leaders actually made up thousands of more laws. Usually they were like double-clicking on current laws, and they had these codes. So by the time that Jesus arrived, you had thousands of laws weighing heavily on the people of God. They didn't know what to believe, many of them, or which laws to obey and which laws were man-made. And so in this passage, you have a lawyer, somebody who's an expert coming to Jesus. And it says he stood up to test Jesus. You ever done that? I've done that. We might not say we're testing Jesus, but this guy, had, had, he had the brass to look Jesus in the eye and think he was going to go toe-to-toe with the King of Kings. It's not going to end well, right? It's not going to end well for him unless he realizes that Jesus is King and that he's not. And then he says in verse 25, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Essentially, he was asking which codes of all those thousands of Jewish codes, which codes should I obey and which codes should I ignore? And thankfully, Jesus doesn't give him an answer. But as a good teacher often does, he simply asks a question. Verse 26, Jesus said, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? In other words, he's saying, what is your philosophy or what is your opinion? It would be like today somebody asking you, what is your denomination? 
Certainly nothing wrong with the various denominations, but the denominations express various interpretations where we and our finite minds might not know exactly what God meant in specific passages. The same was true with them. So Jesus is saying, hey, what's your opinion? And in verse 27, the lawyer answers this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Where is he quoting from? Obviously, that's the Old Testament. If you're new to church, if you're taking notes, you can look it up in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. It's called the Shema. Every Jewish child, every Jewish male, every Jewish female was required to say the Shema twice a day. They wanted to make sure their parents, they knew this part of the law. And so he's quoting from the Old Testament, and Jesus commends him for his answer. Jesus commends him. You say, well, wait a minute. This guy says that the way to heaven is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Maybe Maybe you're wondering, I thought it was faith in Christ that gets you to heaven. Well, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, the word faith, the word trust, the word believe, and the word love often are used interchangeably. You see, in our Eastern, or excuse me, our Western minds, we sometimes tend to think that belief is only mental assent. But for the Hebrew mind, it meant to to, to love someone, to commit your life to someone. And so Jesus says he gave the right answer. And the same is true today. The way to become a Christian is to give your love and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the lawyer continues. It says in verse 27, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're taking notes, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And Jesus is gonna commend him again. He's gonna say, yes, you said the right thing. You have answered correctly, verse 28. Do this and you will live. Why does Jesus commend him again? He's quoting another law. Well, again, Jesus is reminding us that vertical faith results in horizontal love. It's exactly what James said. James was Jesus's half-brother. And James went on to say that if we say we have this relationship, this love or faith with God, but we hate our neighbor or we hate our brother or we hate our sister, how can we say we truly have the love of God in us? So, so far, the guy is answering the question the right way. But notice verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. I like to say it, add in the words some more. He wanted to continue to justify himself. So he asked Jesus another question. He said, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This may seem like a a funny question to us. Why would he say, who is my neighbor? But at that particular time, there was a big debate taking place about who was your neighbor? Because the Old Testament said, love your neighbor. There was one school of thought that said your neighbor was only the person that lived on both sides of you. They were your neighbor. There was another sect of Jews who said that your neighbor was someone who lived beside you and one house over. Then there was another group, no, no joke, you can't make this stuff up. There was another group that said, no, it's not just the people who live beside you and beside them, but actually three houses constitute your neighbors. And they would actually debate this stuff all day long. You say, Pastor Matt, that was probably something people did thousands of years ago. They don't do that kind of stuff today. Yes, they do. 
Let me just take you to the seminary from which I graduated, and you're going to see a bunch of 23-year-old dudes sitting around a coffee shop debating who is your neighbor, right? And Jesus wasn't going to get into the debate. Instead, Jesus tells him a story. In verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, anytime Jesus used the word man or woman, and he didn't give their ethnicity, we can assume he was talking about a Jew, Jesus himself being a Jew, his audience being primarily Jewish. And so most likely he's referring to a Jewish man, and he says he goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is significant, far more significant than if I were to say, one of my closest friends lives down near Madison. If I were to say, hey, I'm going to go down and visit him, I'm going to drive from Charleston to Madison, right? You'd be like, no big deal. Well, it's not a big deal because we have a really nice road all the way down. But they didn't have a really nice road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about 17 miles, but the elevation change was about 3,000 feet. So Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet, give or take, above sea level. Jericho was about 500 feet below sea level. So for 17 miles, they're walking down the hill. Here's what section of the road, the Jericho Road, looked like. The aisles in our church building were actually wider than most of the road. So it was just like a dirt path. Um, I'm told that in that area, the Mojave Desert looks to have more life than this particular part of the world. And there were thieves and robbers who would hide behind caves and behind, hide in caves and hide behind rocks. And they would jump out at a moment's notice. And that's what happened to this man. In verse 30, it said, He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Let's get the picture in our minds. Let's try to envision what this would have looked like. This Jewish man was attacked. He was beaten, he was stripped, he was left half dead. Picture him groaning and bleeding on the ground with chipped teeth and blackened eyes and hair matted down with dried blood. So the people are on the edge of their seats listening to Jesus. Or maybe they didn't have seats, maybe they had rocks, whatever they're listening. They're on, they're on the edge of something and they can't wait for Jesus to resolve this story. You could have heard a pin drop in the room and Jesus says, next, in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, in the Jewish mind, they would have been excited. Finally, the hero has arrived on the story. If you read Jewish literature from a couple thousand years ago, you'll find that more times than not, the heroes of the story were the Jewish priests. That's because most of the people who did the writing at that time of the world, that time of the, of the, of, were the Jewish priests. So if you're doing the writing, most of the time you make yourself the hero, right? We all kind of do that when we tell stories. And so you can just imagine, as Jesus said, a priest, they're like, yes, finally the hero has arrived. But it says, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now we can assume, we don't know for sure that he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho because it says he was going down the road. But I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. That preposition sometimes is used no matter if you're going uphill or downhill. But let's say he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going home. 12 out of 24 of the, the sects of priests lived in Jericho. It was a bedroom community for the priests. And so more than likely, he is leaving Jerusalem, maybe having been there for two or three weeks on duty, and he's going home to Jericho. So 
he's allowed to touch a dead or dying body. Now, if he was going to go into the temple and do sacrifices, he couldn't touch a dead or dying body. But you can just picture he had every excuse in the world why he shouldn't do it. It would defile him ceremonially. And not only did he not touch the man, but it says he passed by on the other side. I didn't know it until this week. There was actually a Jewish law in that 400-year time period between the Old Testament and Jesus. There was a Jewish code, man-made code that was written that said not only could a priest not touch a decaying body, but a priest's shadow couldn't touch a dying or dead body. And so the reason Jesus is very specific is because his audience would have known what he's talking about. His shadow couldn't even touch the guy. So then Jesus tells about another person, verse 32. He says, So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. They would have said, Now, here comes the hero. We'll give the priest a pass, but the Levite, he's going to save the day. You say, who are the Levites? Well, the Levites really had two roles in the temple in Jewish life. One is that they were musicians many times, and two, they were maintenance men. So it would be like some kind of combination between Pastor Caleb and Steve DeBoard, if you know those two guys, right? They were really, really important to what took place at the temple, It was very common for Levites and priests to be on this road, but this Levite fails the test. Just like the priest, he doesn't stop and help the dying man. But notice verse 33. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. Now when we read that, we're like, okay, that's that's a familiar story. What's the big deal? But when they read this, this was jaw-dropping. You know that part of the movie where the, the music, the dramatic music escalates, or, or maybe you can hear the sound of the record screeching? Nobody, nobody was thinking about anything else when Jesus said this story. Because you see, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They were thinking of nothing else. Now, why did the Jews hate the Samaritans? Why do the Samaritans hate the Jews? Well, there's several numbers just to keep in your mind. Uh, we'll, we'll simplify them so we can remember them. The number 700, the number 500, the number 100, and the number 8. 700 years before Jesus, the, we find that Assyria, a powerful nation of the north, came down and conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. They took people away captive, and then they planted Gentiles among the Jews. Well, eventually they intermarried, they had children, and so you had this, what they called half-bloods. It's what Harry Potter also calls half-bloods for you muggle fans, Harry Potter fans. They had half-bloods. And so to, to, to a strict Jew at that time, this was just absolutely abhorrent. How could there be Gentiles and Jews living in the same area and them having children together? And so they became known as the Samaritans. Now, 200 years later, which would be 500 years before Jesus, you have the Jews coming back from Babylonian exile, and they're now, 200 years later, there's this whole nation of Samaritans. I mean, America's not even 250 years old. So this was 200 years of marrying and having babies and having more babies. 200 years later, there's a lot of people in Samaria. So then, 100 years before Jesus, there's still this hatred 
100 years before Jesus, the Jews in the south had gotten tired of the Samaritans in the north. And they actually came up and ransacked their temple, destroyed their temple to say, hey, we are the only ones allowed to approach God. You Samaritans aren't allowed to approach God. A hundred years later, Jesus was about 12 years old, probably about uh, 8 AD or 88, somewhere right around in there. We find that Josephus tells us that the, the Samaritans came down and defiled the Jewish temple. They didn't have the military might to, to destroy or obliterate the temple, but they did spread the bones of dead animals and humans all around, excuse me, all around the temple. And so they could no longer do their sacrifices until they got it cleaned up. The Jews were so mad at the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were so mad at the Jews. And so when Jesus says, the Samaritan stops and helps this dying man, Everybody, everybody was on edge. It would be like today me using an illustration like this. Let's just say that, Je let's say Jesus was teaching today. I would gladly take a seat. Let's say he was teaching and he said, out here on corridor G, there was someone who got hit and they were severely injured. And they're lying by the side of the road and Pastor Matt slows down, sees them, but hits the gas and drives on. And then along comes Pastor John. And you're thinking, surely Pastor John's going to slow down and stop. Pastor John slows down even more. And Pastor John hits the gas and speeds up and passes by, right? And then along comes a few of our elders and our group leaders, and, and they slow down, and then they hit the gas and they speed up. But along comes a jihadist. And the jihadist looks out his window and sees the half-dying man, half-dead man, and he stops, picks him up, takes him to the emergency room, and saves his life. Or maybe if I didn't say jihadist, I said Nazi. He would say, wait a minute, come on. Man. Like that, that, that doesn't even make sense. Why would, why would they do that, but, but not the other group of people? That's what the audience was thinking. This is, this is like the world turned on its head. And in verse 34, Jesus continued, he went to him, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And in verse 36, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. If you're taking notes, you can underline the word do and go. Those words are in the continuous tense. Jesus is saying, go live the rest of your life doing this kind of work over and over again. Go be the Samaritan wherever you are. You be a good Samaritan wherever you are planted. That brings me to the main point. I told you I had one main point and one encouragement. Here's the main point. According to Jesus, authentic disciples love their neighbors as God has loved them. According to Jesus, authentic disciples love their neighbors as God has loved them. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, 
Luke highlights, he compares and contrasts genuine disciples with inauthentic disciples all the way through. You see it in Luke chapter 6 when he mentions Jesus' choosing of the 12. We know that 11 of those 12 were authentic disciples. But remember there was one of the 12 who wasn't authentic. What was his name? Judas, Judas Iscariot. Luke was also the one who wrote the the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, we find that Luke describes Judas' horrific death. And, And so Luke is very aware of what it means to be an authentic disciple and what it means to be a fake disciple. Authentic disciples love their neighbors. All throughout Luke's gospel, he gives us examples of the type of neighbors we're supposed to love. He talks about social outcasts. He mentions the immoral woman in chapter 7, the stingy tax collector Zacchaeus in chapter 19, the thief on the cross in chapter 23. He mentions the upper class, the rich man in Luke 16, the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He mentions the lower class, the prodigal son in Luke 15, Lazarus chapter 16, the widow and her might in chapter 21. Luke actually mentions in his two books, Luke and Acts, he mentions 13 women by name that are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. 13 women. And essentially what Luke is doing is this. He is showing us that everybody, everybody is our neighbor. Jesus' point is this. Wherever you go, whoever crosses your path, no matter how different than they are than you, love them like you would love your favorite neighbor. You say, well, Pastor Matt, why would we do that? Well, it's right there in our main point. It's because of the way God has loved us. Romans 5.8, God showed his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was always Jesus' mission. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the who? The lost. Jesus didn't wait until we snuggled up to him and then he snuggled up to us. Jesus loved us when we were the enemies of God. And because of that, he says, you love anyone, no matter who they are and what place they hold in your life. Now, this is easier said than done. It's easy for me to stand on a stage and proclaim to love people. But what about the people who are hard to love? You probably don't have anybody in your life that's hard to love. I might have one or two people in my life that are hard to love. Nobody in this church, of course. Nobody in this church. But I thought that was going to be funny, but it really wasn't funny. Um, Because of the gospel, we are free to love the unlovable. Think about what Jesus did for us. He came and lived the ordinary. He came and took on humanity, fully God, but yet fully man, born of a virgin. Jesus lives the perfect life. He dies the death that you and I should have died. He was raised the third day. Over 500 people saw him in the 40 days after he rose from the grave. Those hundreds told hundreds and those hundreds told thousands to the point that you had hundreds and thousands of people being willing to die for their faith because they couldn't help but talk about the one they had seen and heard. This risen Christ, who 40 days later ascended into heaven, the Bible tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, if you're here, God brought you here for a purpose. 
And if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, my prayer is that right there where you sit, you will make the choice. Oh, we know that God's drawing your heart, but that you will acknowledge God's work in your heart and put your faith and trust in Christ, loving Jesus, depending on Jesus, wanting to be a follower of Jesus, letting him be the master of your life instead of you being the master of your life. At the end of the service, as Steve already said, if you want to talk to somebody about that, we have a prayer room open over on my left, your right. The doors will open. At the end of the service, I'm going to give you an opportunity right where you sit to put your faith, to pray and put your faith in Christ right there where you sit. But also, I want to tell you about something new I'm excited to share. I'm going to start leading baptism classes. This week and next week, we've got a baptism class on Wednesday night. If you've never been baptized or this morning, you're putting your faith in Jesus and you want to go public with your faith, join me at the baptism class. I'd love to talk with you and share with you what it means to be baptized as a follower of Christ. We see in this passage about what authentic disciples look like. Here's my challenge. Let's love our neighbors as God has loved us. Let's love our neighbors as God has loved us. Now there's multiple ways that we can do that as individuals. But in the few minutes that we have before I pray, I want to share with you some ways that you can do that as part of the church. For over 77 years, or almost 77 years, this church has sought to love the city of Charleston as its neighbors. We've tried to be a good neighbor You know, from the very beginning, the very first pastor, 77 years ago, was the first chaplain of the Charleston Fire Department. We had our our fingers in almost every part of ministry throughout this valley, and 77 years later, that's still our desire. But we can't do everything. A church like us, there's no way we can do everything effectively. And so we've narrowed it to about six things six or seven things that we want to do and we believe we can do well with God's help. Here they are. Quickly, if you want to write them down in your notes. The first way is through city ministries. We want to love through city ministries. We launched the Maker Center, a soft launch just two weeks ago. Maybe you saw it in the news. If you didn't see it in the news, you can check it out on our website, our homepage. Our desire is to love our city well through ministries like the Maker Center, Union Mission, Mountain Mission, and Sojourners. The second way we want to love our city is through counseling and addiction recovery. Counseling and addiction recovery. Every one of us at some point in our life most likely will need counseling. I thank God for the counselors who've been in my life and who are still in my life. My wife and I have benefited. We're going to celebrate 20 years this summer. We have benefited over and over again from marriage counseling. I would encourage you, if you need counseling, you can check us out in the counseling center. Just call the church or go online. But beyond that, we've been gifted, not just with any counselor, but Pastor Ted Tanzi is a certified rehabilitation counselor, which is why he launched Celebrate Recovery last year. I got word this week that Celebrate Recovery now has grown to the point we're going to do a meal every week. Instead of just gathering and celebrating our hungry bellies, we're going we're gonna to come and we're going to have a meal every week. If you want to be a part of that, if you want to be part of the meal, if you want to join us and help participate or just join us in CR, you can do that 
because we believe it's meeting a need in our valley. Education, Bible Center School, is an example of us stepping in to meet a need. We believe as renovation happens, restoration to this valley, education is going to be a big part of it. And so we're thankful for all that Stephanie is doing and our staff is doing at Bible Center School. Foster and adoption advocacy. Foster and adoption advocacy. Number four. Michelle and her team, they have this goal of not only providing support to those who are fostering and adopting, but also to make sure that we're able to connect all the different agencies in the valley. It was through Michelle and her team that Sarah and I were able to find our soon-to-be, by God's grace, son. And if you're interested in adoption or, uh, adoption or foster care, maybe you have experience in that, you want to join us on mission, see Michelle. Let us know how we can help you connect and serve our city in this way. Special needs. Special needs, number five. What Emily King has done is nothing short of phenomenal. Bill Scharf emailed me a note from a recent visitor, and I just want to read you this note. The visitor wrote this. I had the privilege of having a guided tour at Bible-Centered Special Needs Ministry. If you're a parent of a, of a child with special needs looking for a church, please come see this, folks. They've put their heart into seeing that these precious gifts from God are made welcome and safe while giving mom and dad an opportunity to hear God's word without distraction. That's taking place right now as I speak. Special needs ministry. It's an area that we believe is underserved in our area and you are stepping into it by being a part of our church. The last one I'll tell you more about this summer. We're still deciding on the name. Some say business encouragement. I kind of like business development or leadership development. We'll tell you more about that summer. this summer. I just want to give you a little bit of a taste of the sixth way. Think about what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan stopped. The Samaritan sensed. He didn't just pass by. The Samaritan sacrificed. The Samaritan loved when nobody else would love. I want to tell you about a t-shirt I saw at the gym just a couple weeks ago. So uh, there's a fella at the gym I love. He's a follower of Jesus. And he wore this, his, this shirt into the gym one day. Let's go ahead and throw it up on the screen. And, and when he wore it in, my, my, uh, maybe it's just my background, my roots. I had never really seen it before. It, it kind of just jarred me for a second. And so I, I thought about it, I read it, I thought about it, and I read it about it, and I realized it fits perfectly with this message. Love thy neighbor. Love thy homeless neighbor, thy Muslim neighbor, thy black neighbor, thy gay neighbor, thy immigrant neighbor, thy Jewish neighbor, thy Christian neighbor, thy atheist neighbor, thy addicted neighbor. And then I found this quote from Rick Warren. We'll close with this. He says, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. We, God calls us to love our neighbors the way he has loved us. Let's go 
and do likewise. Will you join me in prayer? With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to give you the opportunity right where you sit to put your faith in Christ. He loves you just like you are. You don't have to change a thing to make God love you anymore. But if you let the love of God into your life, He's going to change everything. I wonder this morning, who in here says, you know, Matt, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I'm ready to start this journey. I'm ready to put my faith in Christ and let him transform my life. If that's you, right where you sit, I want to offer you the opportunity to pray this prayer with me. There's no set prayer in the Bible that you have to pray to become a follower of Jesus. One man just simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he became a follower of Jesus. The criminal on the cross beside Jesus, the one who believed, he just said, Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. So there's no set prayer. But I'm going to pray a prayer, and if you in your heart will call out on the name of the Lord, I encourage you to ask him to save you right where you sit. Pray this with me in your heart. Dear Lord, I know I need you. I know I've broken some of your laws. But I believe you love me. And I believe you want to save me. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose again the third day. I ask him to come into my life, to be my Lord, and to be my Savior. Help me to love God. Help me to love other Christians. Help me to love my neighbors like Jesus has loved me. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor Matt, I prayed it, I meant it, I'm glad that I did, I will not embarrass you. I just want to know who among us, we had one in our first service raise his hand and said, a gentleman, I prayed it, I meant it, I'm glad that I did. Would you say that this morning? Pastor Matt, I prayed it, I meant it, I'm glad that I did anonymously. Would you slip up your hand and put it right back down so I can remember you as we pray, thank God for you, sir, over on my left. Say, thank God for you, ma'am. You're in the middle. Is there another with this gentleman and this lady? I prayed it, I meant it. I'm glad that I did. Thank God for you, young lady. With these three, if there's any others in our service, and you've prayed it, and you want to be a follower of Jesus, I'd love for you to let me know out in the lobby, or you could stop by the prayer room, or if not either of those, come to my baptism class on Wednesday night. I'd love to help you start this journey called the Christian life. Father, thank you for what you're doing at Bible Center Church. And God, I pray that you would help this pastor to lead and love and model the type of love that I preach. Lord, it's so easy to stand up here and just to talk about it. But God, I pray that you would help me, help our staff, help our elders, help our deacons, help our group leaders. God, help us to be transformed and gripped by love. Lord, we're not going to agree with everyone in our lives. We're not even going to agree with ourselves half the time. But God, help us to love like Jesus loved unconditionally. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Once again. Thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.